electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, the UAW strike fallout expands. A top auto dealer telling us how they're weathering the impact and what it may mean for the price and availability of your next car. Oil on a relentless rally is 100 bucks a barrel right around the corner. The strange state of housing getting stranger with implications far beyond the price of your home. Plus, breaking developments on the scramble to find a missing stealth fighter jet and you will not want to be stuck with this tab. And it's Make It Mondays, and we're going to meet the entrepreneur behind one of the hottest ice cream brands out there, and he is scooping up millions. All that and much more this hour. It's belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. All right, hi, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. We'll get into all that shortly, but as that snazzy graphic implies, we've got some breaking news, and it's on Instacart and their hotly anticipated IPO. Leslie Picker joining us now live with the details. Leslie. Hey, Brian. Yeah, pricing at the high end of the range that they boosted last week. That's $30 a share, and at that price, they will be raising $660 million. That's Money sold by or shares sold by Instacart as well as the sharing selling shareholders. Instacart selling uh, about 14.1 million of the 22 million shares, so a decent amount of primary shares here. Uh, but there are cornerstone investors that are purchasing about 400 million of the 660 million of this float. So that leaves only $260 million for institutional investors, maybe a little bit of retail, maybe a little bit of hedge funds to buy in at the IPO price. And at that $30 per share, that values Instacart at $9.9 billion. And while this whole marketing process with the roadshow and raising the range of pricing at the high end of the range, it all sounds great, Brian. But if you think about 2021, this is a company that actually raised private capital at a $39 billion valuation. So we're looking at a little over 25% of that uh, prior private funding round, about a quarter of that valuation in this deal on a fully diluted basis. So this is a quintessential down round, but one that's actually going to get out and get public after having been filed for about 16 months. They initially filed their S1 16 months ago confidentially. So it's maybe a sign of the times that we could see more of these down rounds yeah. as other companies that were valued higher two years ago, maybe three years ago, start to realize these are the markets now and this is kind of what you have to do if you want to actually make your public debut. We've waited a while. Instacart's been around for a long, long time. So I'm, if I'm hearing you right, Leslie, please say, Sully, no, you're not. If I'm hearing you right, the good news <laughs> is that they're going public. Finally, they're pricing at the high end of the range. We have another IPO. Yay. The not as good news is that, as you noted, they used to be worth almost $40 billion. This will put them at just under 
10 billion, a far cry from the sort of the pandemic heyday where everybody was delivering everything. Yeah, and it's worth noting that some of those cornerstone investors that I mentioned are the same investors who bought in at that peak back in 2021, at least the near-term peak, the private peak of $39 billion. But you're right. The good news is they are actually taking that step to go public. This is good news for some employees who are looking for liquidity, looking to cash out on those shares that they've held privately for a really, really long time. Now, it's unclear, you know, what proportion of those employees have certain strike prices and what this means for them. Uh, but nonetheless, it's an opportunity for them to get liquidity, which is certainly something uh, to celebrate. And as we look for additional IPOs, um, that's something that other startups will be looking at as well, just to give their employees a chance to, um, you know, cash out maybe some of their shares or, or at least... Uh, they have the option to do so. Making a little money, working hard. They deserve it. We'll see how the thing comes out. Leslie Picker, appreciate you joining us live. Take care. All right, now let's turn to day four of the UAW strike. The union and the Detroit three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, still remain far apart in negotiations. The UAW is looking for, among other things, a 40% pay raise, while the automakers are offering far less. For example, Stellantis, the parent company of Chrysler and Jeep, proposed 21%. Also, the automakers are throwing in things like one-time bonuses. Now, one big public point the UAW has been making is how much automaker CEO pay has gone up versus how much theirs have gone up. The UAW highlights that the CEOs of GM, Ford, and Stellantis have had an average jump in total comp of about 40% in the past four years, while the union says their last contract was a meager 6% pay increase. So let's dive into some of these numbers CNBC style. Here's how much the CEOs of Detroit 3 made last year. Ford CEO Jim Farley, about $20.9 million. Stellantis, Carlos Tavares, $24.8 million. GM CEO Mary Barra, $28.9 million. That is a lot of money. Now, most of that, of course, was in stock, not in cash, but still a lot of money. So how does it compare to big company averages or companies that are kind of similar, right? They make stuff. They've got a unionized workforce, et cetera. Well, the AFL-CIO notes that overall S&P 500 company CEOs make about 272 times the average employee pay at their company. So how do the automakers compare? Well, Ford CEO makes a slightly higher 281 to 1, GM about 362 to 1. And what about some relatively similar companies? For example, John Deere. Well, their CEO makes 163 to 1 over his employees. Deere's median pay is much higher than the automakers. And Delta Airlines CEO Ed Bastian, he makes about 124 times the average worker. So the automakers are above the median for big and similar type company CEOs. But there are some that are higher, much higher. After a big jump from 2021, Harley Davidson CEO made 539 times his company's median pay. And since the CEO pay issue is such a big and politically charged issue. We thought it would be random but interesting to show you what would happen if the auto CEOs decided to take zero pay and instead give it all back to their UAW members. Obviously, it's not going to happen. It's kind of a fun exercise, but it's numbers you won't hear anywhere else. If each CEO of the Detroit Three gave back all their comp and divided among all the unionized workers at their companies, here's how it would impact the UAW workers' monthly paycheck. A Ford worker would take home an extra $30 a month. Stellantis, 52, and GM, an extra $49 per month. So not very much. In fact, 
less than a tank of gas, especially now. But it's not really about the actual CEO dollars. It's more about their pay and how much that versus profits have gone up and UAW compensation has not. So you, can you blame the union members for wanting something a little more for themselves and their families? Probably not. Let's talk about this and, of course, the ongoing strike with Democratic Congresswoman from Michigan, Debbie Dingell. She is huge in the auto world. Her district has auto factories in it. She's also on the uh, subcommittee for climate change as well. So, Congresswoman uh, Dingell, really appreciate you joining us. We tried to highlight the pay in a way that others aren't. It's such a politically charged issue. Do you fear it can become almost kind of a red herring for the real issues? I think it is a red herring for the real issues. I do believe that workers are seeing this increase in CEO pay, and that does matter. But here is the reality that people really need to focus on. When 2008 and 2009 hit, and by the way, I was a, I was a GM executive at the time and left when this all happened. The workers did not want to see the companies fail. They gave, and they gave up their cost of living, what we call COLA, then. They have never gotten their COLA back in real terms. They are making 10% less than they were making in, in a, when you adjust for inflation than they were making in 2008 and 2009. The, the Wall Street uh, expert that helped President Obama figure out what was going to happen in 2008 and 2009 to save these companies himself has said to even stay equal to where they were in 2008 and 2009, they need a 30 percent increase. So, you know, I want to keep this auto industry competitive. I'm not like Donald Trump going to see EVs 100 percent built in China. But I also know the work worker is the backbone of our American mm -hmm. economy and these automobiles, and they deserve to be paid a fair wage. Yep. And the point we tried to make was to sort of lay out the numbers in different ways, Congresswoman, and, and let the viewer decide if it's too much. I, I have no idea. I guess that last point we tried to make was that if the CEOs took zero dollars in stock or any other cash, and divided it out, it wouldn't make much of a difference amongst all, all the workers. But is the idea more that CEO pay jumped 40%? Well, to your point, the UAW got 6%, which, again, to your point, cost of living adjustments. COLA means they're actually making less than they were. That's correct. And the workers are looking for job security. They're looking, you know, they have, you have people on the line working and doing the exact same job that are being paid far different, a larger differential between the two. You have temporary workers that are temporary for eight to 10 years. These are issues that need to be addressed. But on the other hand, the companies have reinvested some of this into the transition period. I'm tired of everybody making this either or, global climate or the worker. We need to do both, and that's why I'm proud I authored it. DOE announced before Labor Day grants to help companies transition uh, to transition these plants to new plants so that we have plants that are going to employ these workers. We need to be looking out of the box and really talking about how we transition to a, a, the newer vehicles, new technologies, stay competitive in a global marketplace. This is not a talking point moment. This I, I, is when the rubber hits the road. I was in your district actually about two weekends ago. Congresswoman flew into the airport, drove to Ypsilanti, went back some other directions, did not see any electric cars. I saw two near Ann Arbor at one point. 
And I'm not bringing that up I'm, except for the fact that I polled a bunch of my Twitter viewers or Twitter followers and asked them if the push for EVs would re- result in more or fewer jobs, unionized jobs in five years. 88% said fewer, and that's my audience. So they're probably going to lean a certain way in some ways. But 88%, is the UAW right to be concerned about this, this transition that we're talking about? Absolutely, because we're at a crossroads. But our job as policymakers, by the way, they're going to be new jobs. And we need to make sure those workers are worried that what they're making, building an internal combustion engine, what we call ICE, isn't going to be what they're making, building a a battery, an electric vehicle, or the battery for the electric vehicles. They're going to be new jobs. We have to make sure that the worker is being treated fairly in this transition. And by the way, we got to make sure the worker can afford those electric vehicles. We got to make sure the foundation is there for whatever the technology is of the future. So the charging stations have to be there. It's going to take all of us working together to do this transition for the future that both protects the environment and protects the worker. And that's what I'm focused on doing both. You know, but we're seeing we're seeing tens or even it could go into the hundreds of billions of taxpayer dollars that are given in subsidies for this transition, battery technology, et cetera. A lot of that, Congresswoman, like $2.1 billion in Georgia recently is going to companies that are based not in the United States to non-unionized workers that are making some of these cars and that technology in southern states and not knocking any of that. But if I'm a UAW worker in Flint or in Toledo or in Wentzville, Missouri, you know what I'm thinking? Why are they getting U.S. taxpayer funding when we're in this fight for our lives here? So I I agree with them. That's why people are trying to make sure that we have card check at these companies that are going there. People have the right to unionize. I will tell you something. Every person in America has benefited from what the union has negotiated over the years, from the 40-hour work week to benefits that we have. And in the auto industry, whether you're a union job or a non-union job, you have benefited from what's negotiated by the UAW. So I'm fighting to make sure that our dollars are going to American companies, American workers. Some of those non-union workers are, are American jobs, but I think they've got a, a right to car check and that we need yeah. to be protecting the worker. Is it quickly, uh, Congresswoman? Is there a chance this drags on for weeks, or do you think? And I'm sure you're in the know. This could this could be resolved fairly soon. I don't know right now. I think everybody needs to stay at the table. Uh, those at the table are going to be able to determine, and I think. It could be done in, you know, a relative short term, and this could go on for a while, and I think it could go either way right now. I hope everybody stays at the table and uh, the companies hear what the unions are saying and that we can get this resolved. The strike helps nobody. Well, it does help. It helps the worker, but it does impact the economy. Uh, Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan, right there in the thick of it, and we appreciate your time. Congresswoman, know you're busy. Thank you. Thank you. Are you welcome. All right. Well, the stock market, by the way, has taken this in stride. So far, it's not going up much, but stocks aren't losing you money recently either. Today, the averages kept up their sort of quiet September trend. The Dow rose 0.02%. The biggest winner of the day was Tyler Technology. That's a Texas-based software company, up nearly 4%. And this is interesting. The biggest decliner was Moderna. It fell 9%. Now, Pfizer saying it expects only 24% uptake for the new booster. Maybe that weighed on Moderna as well. We don't know. Not a lot of news. There's been some insider selling. But Moderna, the worst name 
in the S&P 500 as we're rolling out a new booster. That's something to watch. All right. We've got a lot more to do here tonight on Last Call and coming up an oil rally that just won't quit. And now Saudi Arabia's top energy officials speaking out is $100 a barrel oil just around the corner. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. First up is a shakeup at Blocks Square. Alyssa Henry is the current CEO of the fintech platform, will step down. She'll leave the company on October 2nd. Block CEO Jack Dorsey, yeah, the former head of Twitter, that guy, will head up Square also for the time being. Shares of Block are down. After, that's, the, again, the fintech company, not the, pay, the tax preparation company H&R. Block. I almost said Preparation H, but that's a totally different thing. All right, next up, some concerning news out of United. The airline has discovered bogus parts in two plane engines from supplier AOG Technics. United will be replacing, thankfully, the engines in both planes before they are returned to flying. United, not the first airplane to discover fake parts. Both Southwest Airlines and Virgin Australia Airlines have reported finding suspicious parts from AOG Technics, which leads me to question, who is AOG Technics? We should probably be, like, digging in. All right, in the meantime, oil and gas prices continue to surge. Oil now up 14 of the past 17 sessions, rising nearly 20% in that time. Oil is above $90 here, higher overseas. That is the highest level since November. And even though there does tend to be a lag of about a month to six weeks between when oil and gas prices move, gasoline is already moving higher. The nationwide average, $3.88 a gallon. California saying, hold my beer. You're at $5.68 a gallon. It's also above 5 bucks on average in Washington state. Gasoline demand in America and Europe is on the rise. U.S. production not going up very much. And OPEC and Saudi Arabia and Russia have cut production and will extend those cuts through the end of of the year. And speaking of that, at a conference in Canada today, Saudi Arabia's energy minister defending his kingdom's actions, saying those cuts aren't about, quote, jacking up prices. So how much higher will prices go before we start to see some relief? And what else is in play here? Your next guest actually interviewed the Saudi energy minister today up in Calgary and joins us now from that fine Canadian city. Joining us, of course, RBC Capital Markets Managing Director, CNBC contributor, Halima Croft. Halima, obviously, it was cl- cl- we didn't see it on camera. What were the one or two key takeaways with Saudi Energy Minister Abdulaziz bin Salman? 
Well, I think what's so interesting is he said the jury is still out on the outlook for oil this year. And when I asked him what metrics are they looking at, because they're going to be assessing this unilateral cut every month. It's officially extending through year end. But he said, we're looking every month. It could go either way. And he said, we're looking at Chinese demand, European growth, central bank action. And so, yes, it's supposed to run through year end. But there could still be a surprise, I would say. So I would say that we're still going to be waiting month to month to see what happens with this unilateral cut. Did he feel the need to defend? We we gave the the quote about not jacking up prices, not intended to. Did he feel the need to defend those cuts? Well, I think the IEA statement, you know, last week, you know, basically criticizing Russia and Saudi Arabia, saying that it's going to cause volatility and prices and huge deficits. I think he felt he needed to go on the record saying that they are not going back to the sort of 80s style policy where they keep cutting and cutting to drive prices higher. I think the interesting question again is, you know, if this is going to be reviewed every month. What are the metrics that they are looking at? And I would also say it's taking place against the backdrop of this effort between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia to craft this grand diplomatic bargain. And he did say that there was an important bilateral meeting between the United States and Saudi Arabia at the G20, which facilitated this memorandum of understanding on the India-Middle East-Europe economic corridor. So forward momentum in those bilateral negotiations. Nothing is more geopolitical in business than oil. Iran playing a role here as well. I think their their volumes are back to where they were pre-sanctions. Now, thank God we got five U.S. prisoners out of Iran today. They landed safely in Qatar. So great job by the administration to work that out. But at the same time, Iran basically expelled about a third of its nuclear inspectors a couple of days ago. How and where does Iran fit into the entire global oil sphere right now, Halima? I mean, this is so important because Iranian production has come back, as you mentioned, to pre-sanctions levels. Do I think that enters into the thought process of the OPEC countries as they think about the production cuts? Sure. The question for the White House is, though, Have you already realized all the gains of essentially this deal? How much more can Iran actually bring into the market? Because Europe is not going to go out and purchase Iranian barrels as long as the sanctions officially remain in place. So the White House, I think, has to go look at other places to get barrels. And again, that's going to be a challenge. Yes, you can potentially get a couple hundred thousand out of Venezuela, but they have to hold elections next year. Can you get the Iraqi pipeline back up on Mm -hmm. running? Potentially, but they're subject to OPEC quotas. So the question is, what does the White House do to try to get some relief? Do you think there's another blockbuster SPR release coming? Not that I've heard. So hence, I would say pays close attention to the diplomatic activity between Washington and Riyadh. As we will. And we always pay close attention to what you write as well, because you know it better than anybody. Halima Croft, know you got an event. Thank you. By the way, tell Alberta I said hello. And I miss it. Absolutely. You should come up here. (laughs) Well, a little late now. Halima, thank you. (laughs) All right. Still ahead. Two things you never want to happen around housing are happening, but they may not necessarily spell doom and gloom. A real estate health check. Next. 
It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. All right, welcome back. Obviously, a lot going on on this Monday, but right now we're also going to take a look at real estate because we need to remember that housing is a lot bigger than the stock market. Likely matters a lot more to you and the American economy than stocks do. And that may be a problem because there is some not so good, maybe very bad news going on with residential real estate right now. First up, you know this, the cost of buying a home has gone parabolic, but do you know how much? Apollo Investments notes that the median monthly payment has nearly doubled in just the last couple of years from about $1,500 per month nationwide to nearly $3,000 today. It happens as the twin-headed hydra of housing happens, borrowing costs soaring and prices also staying high. And since most of you that own a home probably bought it based on what you could afford in the monthly payment and not the overall price, it means that housing affordability is also tanking. In fact, Apollo also found that based on monthly payment and salary and pay data across America, their housing affordability index is now below 2007. Think about that. Right now, many homes across America are less affordable than they were at the peak of the housing bubble 15 years ago. Now, does that mean that some kind of crash like that is imminent? No. Because people aren't doing crazy dumb stuff like they did back then. No income loans, 32 different mortgages, whatever. At least, not yet. Joining us now is Brown Harris Stevens, CEO, Bess Friedman. Bess, good to have you on. I mean, the numbers are getting pretty scary, but I'm not seeing any sign, maybe pockets here and there, of any kind of a downturn. If anything, the market is still hot. Yeah, I mean, the market is still very hot because the demand remains high. And that's been really the challenge why prices have not really come down, because we don't have enough inventory. Uh, And when rates start to come down, we'll get more inventory, then prices will start to come down. And like you said, Brian, we don't have those crazy mortgages that we had back then. There are guardrails. So I don't see any bubble anytime soon. Uh, you know, the market has been pretty decent given all the headwinds, you know, the prices, rates and tight inventory. We are still doing fairly well overall, but there are a lot of people waiting on the sidelines, buyers and sellers right now. A friend of mine put their home on the market last weekend above asking. They got 11 offers. They were all above the above asking price and a bunch of those were cash. I Please help it make sense. Yeah, I mean, look. Again, there is no inventory. And so people who want to sell right now, they can get really good prices. uh, And that's a great thing. Uh, But some people will not put their homes on the market because they don't want to pay double for their mortgage. Uh, But the ones that are doing that are getting really good prices. And therefore, it might make sense for them to make a lot more money on the sale of their home. They're willing to pay a little bit more in their mortgage. And they're expecting, like many consumers are, that next year rates will go down and they 
can do a refi. Uh, we have to wait to see what the Fed says tomorrow and Wednesday. They may skip a, a hike, um, but they'll yeah. probably do another one before the end of the year because we're trying to target inflation at 2%. So that's expected. But I think you can do really well. If you want to sell right now, you can probably get a really good price for your home. The problem is then you need somewhere to go. You can sell unless you're moving to, I don't know, Gabon. Right. You're going to you're going to you're going to have to pay these inflated. Maybe they have housing inflation there as well, too. I just wonder who all these buyers are. I guess it's the bank of mom and dad. Uh, let's go to a different issue in that. Speaking of mom and dad, that yeah. is rents in yep. Manhattan. Again, help I it know. help it make why are people paying six thousand dollars a month for like a tiny one bedroom looking into an air shaft on 103rd Street. You did it, Brian. You know, uh, that's, you uh, that's literally like, a, like almost exact. <laughs> you did it, Brian. You've been there. We looked you know, into an air shaft. I'm not kidding. My first listen, place was a pigeon was my neighbor. I mean, listen, the pigeon is your neighbor, but you're in New York City. And people, you know, they want to be here. They want to be in New York City. I do think rental prices have topped out. We're seeing landlords trying to keep their existing tenants in place. Um, they're not taking a chance. And I think you're, we're going to start to see my guess is rents to start to peter down um, because the trees can't grow to the sky. I mean, these prices are epic, crazy, um, but people want to be in New York City. You know, I have a lot. I know a lot of people, young professionals who are sharing apartments. Um, and so, you know, they split it up. They figure it out. Uh, and it makes sense to be in the heart of New York City to do yeah. the hustle every day. People want to be here. That's true. And they're paying up. But to your point, they can't go to the sky. We'll see. Take a look more at national trends as well and find out where there might be some cracks. Crazy times. Best Friedman. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right. Straight ahead. Maybe the oddest story you'll hear all day. And there are breaking developments in the frantic scramble to find a nearly $100 million fighter jet that went missing. Plus, how the UAW strike may cause serious wear and tear on car dealers. We'll speak with one upcoming. All right, time now for your Monday RBI. And tonight, maybe random but invisible, a little more appropriate, although it was until a short time ago. Because listen to this, a Marine Corps F-35 stealth fighter jet went missing over South Carolina, but it has been found in really just the last hour. A search effort was underway for the last day or so. Now, the jet's pilot had to eject after what they call a, quote, mishap during a flight out of Charleston. Thankfully, the pilot was OK. But this crash is one expensive, quote, mishap. Depending on the order, a single jet costs around $80 million. They're made by Lockheed Martin. This particular variant of the F-35 is distinctive because it's got a short vertical takeoff and landing ability. As you'd expect, it's very difficult to detect, to detect by radar. The F-35 program, the most expensive weapons program in American history, expected to cost all in $1.7 trillion. The jet was in autopilot mode after the pilot ejected, but now the jet, at least its remains, have been found about two hours northeast of Joint Base Charleston. That, according to the military, obviously still many questions. And officials say recovery efforts of the jet are now underway. The, quote, mishap is currently under investigation and probably one of the most expensive treasure hunts ever reaching an ending. Could they just throw like an Apple AirTag? on the plane? Maybe next time. All right, random but interesting and glad the pilot is safe. All right, as the UAW strike closes out day four, it is still no deal between the union and the big three. 
And the longer the impasse, the greater the impact on inventory at dealerships across America. According to New Edge Wealth Analyst Ben Emmons, who joined us a couple of days ago on the show, if the strike goes beyond mid-November, the impact of supply on new car and used car prices could become material and thus even impact the overall inflation data. They're tied. Already some car models, ones made at striking plants, could see an impact. According to CarGurus, the inventory for the GMC Canyon down 7%, the Ford Ranger down 5%, and the Jeep Wrangler down 2%. But it's early. Where's this going to go? And how will you, if you want to buy cars, right, will you abandon the big three for other automakers who are not impacted by the strike? Let's bring in Tom Maoli. He is the owner of Celebrity Motor Cars. His group is based in New Jersey. They operate there and in New York. They've got Lexus, BMW, Alfa Romeo, Maserati, Mercedes-Benz, but also Ford. And Tom, welcome to Last Call, because you're a Ford dealer. Ford is on strike. The others aren't. What are you hearing about potential supplies of Ford trucks to you? Well, first, good to see you, Brian. But, you know, listen, the, the, the supply chain has been shut down right now with the strike. And what's going on is we have a 30 to 45 day supply on the lot at each, each of the dealerships. But we're going to burn through that very quickly. And, you know, what, what nobody's what people aren't taking into account is the big issue is parts. Because the, the consumer does not have to buy a vehicle. They can put it off, but they have to get their car fixed. So if they don't have the parts and the supply chain is shut down, they, the consumer can't come in. They can't get their car fixed. They can't get to work. They can't get their children to school. It's a big problem. Well, right now, the strikes are at one plant for each of the three. One at GM, one at Ford, and one yes. at Stellantis. That's Stellantis ones. That's Toledo. That's Jeep. You don't do Jeep, but Jeep is a big deal because that plant is massive What are you worried about as far as the expansion of the strike? And when could it be a situation where you as a Ford dealer say, "Okay, I'd like to bring in more of these Maverick trucks and they say we don't have any? Well, it's happening already. It's happened already. It's happening already. They're slowing down uh, supply to the dealerships. And listen, right now, the union is flexing their muscle. That's what they're doing. That's why they only shut down certain plants. But it's going to expand little by little. They have to get to the table and they have to figure this out. But what the union's asking for, what the UAW is asking for is unsustainable. You can't have a 40 percent a pay increase and cut the work week by 30% down to 32 hours. It's unsustainable. What's going to happen here is if they if they continue down this path, they're going to force the manufacturers to continue to go to other places to build their parts and their cars like Mexico and China, which is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to drive manufacturing back to the U.S. and the unions forcing it out. So they have to come to the table. They have to come to their senses. You know, we're living in 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 an environment right now where there's huge inflation. We're living in eight to 10 percent inflation in the United States of America. You can't ask for a 40 percent pay increase. Yeah. What's the risk of them losing permanent market share? Car buyers tend to be very loyal. People I know buy F-150s. They only buy F. They would never buy a GMC, a Chevy or a Ram. What's the risk of, you know, you go out to get a GMC Yukon and you're like, you can't find one. So you, you buy a, one of your Lexus SUVs and realize I like it better. And, and now you're a life now you're a lifetime Lexus buyer and they've just lost a lot of market share. That has to be a concern. 
listen, you hit the nail on the head and it's already happening. What happens is the, the, the life cycle of a, of a car buyer is three to four years. When you buy a car, you don't replace it for three or four years. So once they lose that consumer, they're out of that market for three to four years. I think they're making a big mistake here. But I have to tell you, if I were if I yeah. were running Ford, GM or Stellantis, I'd be at the table with the unions and I'd say, you know what, guys, you want a pricing, you want a pay increase, you want to cut back your work hours. Guess what? Yeah, yeah. we have record profits. We're making billions of dollars. But you know what? They're not looking at it. Ford is predicting to lose $4.5 billion this year on this EV craziness that the Biden administration has has put in well, place. I think, well, we got to go. We got to go. I want to bring you back on. Why do you call it craziness? Are you not selling any lightnings? No one's buying the electric car. It's not it's not oh. sustainable. There's no infrastructure and the consumer's not adapting to it. And that's and by the way, you're saying that we got to go. That's, you're saying that as a dealer in New Jersey, which has one yes. of the highest EV penetration rates. People don't want EVs. They want Teslas. And there's a difference. Exactly. Tom, appreciate it that you just heard it, folks. That's a dealer right there. I've talked to 50 of them. They all said the same thing. All right, coming up, he wrote the book about dumb money. Literally, author Ben Metric joining us next on his adaptation into a buzzy new movie. I hope they produced a great movie. I will absolutely see it. GameStop, AMC. That's, I mean, the amount of money lost there by people who didn't have that money to lose is really sad. That was Citadel founder and CEO Ken Griffin, one of the richest men in the world, by the way. He spoke with Sarah Eisen for a CNBC Leaders special. The full interview, by the way, will air tonight, right after this fine show, 8 p.m. Now, Griffin is weighing in on the new movie out in the middle release for now called Dumb Money, which portrays him and other investors during the GameStop meme stock craze that really did send Wall Street into a frenzy. Griffin and his firm had been criticized for their role in the GameStop short squeeze back in January of 21. So what actually happened during that crazy period? Well, our next guest wrote the book that literally was the basis of the movie, Dumb Money. Now, the book was called The Antisocial Network, came out in 2021. And joining us now is the Antisocial Network author, along with a ton of other books. I've read every one. They're fantastic. Ben Mesrick. Ben, thank you so much for coming on Last Call. Have you seen the movie? Oh, yeah. I've seen it about five times, I guess. And, and I love it. Okay. How closely <laughs> you, you wrote the book. How closely does the movie mirror your book? I mean, I think it it mirrors it pretty well. The screenwriters made some really wonderful choices and added a few characters and it doesn't pull any punches. You know, it goes right at corruption on Wall Street and uh, Ken, who, you know, I know is coming up next, but it goes after sort of what what was seen as as a, a pretty, uh, pretty uh, rigged system, or at least it looked that way. Um, but I think it follows the book pretty carefully. And then it does some really, really cool things um, that I think people are going to love. We want people to go watch the movie, so we don't want to give away too much. But what was something that may have surprised you about the movie, having literally written the book on what the movie was based on? Well, first of all, it's funny. Uh, and, you know, when you write a book like this, and, and it's an absurd situation, GameStop riding that high and all the craziness that went on with the apes and Reddit, but the movie is is a comedy, um, and it's it's actually m funnier than, <laughs> than I, I would have guessed going into it. And I think Pete Davidson is incredible, and I think he's going to surprise a lot of people how good he is in this. Um, and I think it, the emotion, there's so much emotion in this movie because it captures a a moment where people are really angry and it captures the pandemic 
in a way that I've never seen before. Um, so I think that's going to surprise people. You heard we heard we just heard from Ken Griffin, Ken, one of the richest men in the world, one of the most powerful people on Wall Street. And I've met him a number of times, a very serious guy. He hopes he's portrayed well. Was he? Um, I think he is portrayed accurately. Uh, mm. I think that, you know, there's a lot that goes on in the story and in the movie um, that people are going to have a lot of questions about. So I think there will be some things he doesn't like about it. Hopefully he will like the fact that Nick Offerman is playing him in a movie. Nick is amazing. And uh, it's it's a really a wild story. I think a lot of your viewers know a lot of the beats of it. But when they see it, you know, on the screen, they're going to learn things that they they didn't know. And I think Ken is portrayed in an accurate and uh, dramatic way. And I'm guessing Offerman has no mustache, but we'll have to leave it there. <laughs> ben Mesrick, the Anti-Social Network is the name of the book. Check it out. I listened to it on Audible as well. Ben, thank you for coming on Last Call. Welcome anytime. Oh, anytime. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Fascinating. Thank you. All right. Coming up, it is Make It Mondays, and it's really like it's a two-scoop kind of night because we're going to meet the entrepreneur behind Van Leeuwen, one of the hottest, not the hottest, ice cream brands in America. All right, welcome back. It is Monday, so it's Make It Mondays, and I scream and you scream, and tonight we all scream for ice cream. And we're going to meet Ben Van Leeuwen. He's the co-founder and CEO of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream, a massively popular artisanal ice cream brand. I'm going to try Sicilian pistachio while you watch this. I think our first day in business, we sold like... 300 scoops. Today, on a really busy day in the summer, we will serve over 40,000 guests in our scoop shops. Hey, I'm Ben Van Leeuwen, the co-founder and CEO of Van Leeuwen Ice Cream, and I'm here at our shop in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I was walking around New York City one day and I saw Mr. Softy Truck. That's when subconsciously and consciously everything clicked. My best friend, Laura O'Neill, and my brother, Peter Van Leeuwen, are my co-founders. In 2008, with $60,000 that we raised from friends and family, we launched a single ice cream truck onto the streets of New York City. What makes our base distinct is we use a lot of fat, so a lot of cream, a lot of eggs, and no stabilizers. So it's really simple. Um, we just use a lot of the expensive stuff, and that gives it a creaminess, a chewiness. So two years into the business, we had the opportunity to open a brick and mortar shop. That was not part of the business plan. Literally within three hours of opening that shop, we said we are never building another ice cream truck. Shops are so much easier, they generate more revenue. On a very busy day at Van Leeuwen, we generate up to $300,000 in revenue. We commercialize almost 100 new flavors every single year. We have over 50 stores, corporate owned in seven states, and we sell to almost 10,000 grocery stores in 50 states. I think as, as long as we are happy, as long as we're able to run a company where our team is happy, and as long as we're, of course, able to keep our guests happy and continue serving them good ice cream, we will continue to grow Van Leeuwen. All right, Ben Van Leeuwen joining us now. And I, I little, I'm, I'm eating honeycomb. Okay, you got Marionberry, which is funny. Sicilian pistachio, vanilla bean. You've got, ran- is there a ranch dressing flavored ice cream, I'm told? We made Hidden Valley Ranch ice cream. 
That sounds gross, but I'm assuming it was good. Oh, it was okay. Yeah? It was just, and the knives out. And then so, it tastes exactly like him. Ben, I, I don't, I've, I've known you for 90 seconds. I'm going to say something. You are a mad genius. Okay, this is fantastic, and I don't, I don't, I'm not a huge ice cream eater. How do you come up with these ideas, and how big can Van Leeuwen be? Because you're expanding very mm. rapidly. I'm just going to eat while you talk. Well, we come up with the ideas based on what we think our scoop shop guests and the grocery customer wants. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, what we do is really classic American ice cream amped up. So more cream, more eggs than any ice cream on the market, and then very thoughtfully sourced ingredients. That means pistachios from Sicily, Marion berries from Oregon, our own homemade honeycomb candy, brownies, and all the inclusions we use never have any palm oil, hydrogenated oils. So really good stuff, really clean label. And how big can we be? Because it's a big market. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, listen, you're taking on big players, right? You're, you've got, there's a lot, there's a, it's a huge multi-billion dollar industry. How do you stand out? How do you win in that kind of a market? I think one, you make a differentiated product, which we do, um, and you then mm. continue to stay focused on every detail, you know, from product, from the people who help us grow this business, from the store build-outs to how we market it, to the, of course, customer service. How do you do that while maintaining the quality control that you want, not only of the ice cream, but of the employees at the scoop shops? Don't grow too quickly. Don't grow too quick. Well, therein lies the challenge. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so, for example, this, st- this year we'll have opened 18 stores. I wanted to open 50 stores next year, but the leadership team and I got together and we said, if we open 50 stores, we're going to have to double the size of our corporate team. And that's going to, for better or worse, disrupt culture. So let's cut that in half. And distract you. And, and distract us, why, too. Why ice cream? You, you were in college, did a little stint at some restaurants. Yep. Decided to buy an ice cream truck, and now this. Why the, the, ice cream? The best job I ever had before going to college was driving an ice cream truck in the summertime, senior year of high school. Two years into college, I did that in summer. I made a lot of money, and I loved being on a truck. I loved customer service. And finishing college, I said, why don't we do really good ice cream off of a truck mm. and sell it in New York City? So that was... You won't touch this question, but I'm CNBC, so I'm going to ask. Okay. Have you been approached to be bought? Um, Yet? No. We haven't. I mean, there's a lot of interest, but we have not had an offer, you know, a clear cut. Here's here's how much we want to. Because because that that would be some cookie dough. Yeah, that was a really yeah. bad dad <laughs> pun. I Kareem, don't look at me like that. I have to say something semi funny. Um, ben Van Leeuwen, we've got peanut butter brownie honeycomb. The honeycomb, by the way, so far is legit. I'm gonna try them all without trying to like it, you know be nasty. <laughs> Share the spoon among all of them. Ben Van Leeuwen, thank you very much for coming on. And thanks for bringing in ice cream. And this is the part of the show where we say goodbye and the team eats. Awesome. By the way, that's it for tonight. Leaders with Ken Griffin. A new series kicks off in about five seconds. We'll see you tomorrow night. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.